<laughs> All right, well, welcome. Apparently we have a lot of people out of town for Thanksgiving. <laughs> but you're not out of town. You're here. And you are welcome with open arms. Glad you're here. A few weeks ago I handed out pages 40 to 42. Yeah, 40 to 42. So check your notebook there if you got your notebook. See if you got 40 to 42. If you need 40 to 42, I have three copies of that. Mandy, you've got it. Good. It's been a little bit. 40 to 42. Here you go, sir. I think we'll make it halfway down page 40 today. That's my guess. Okay. Well, let me uh, pray, and then we'll get started on a new lesson here in our section on salvation. Let's, uh, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this day that you've made. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to serve you, worship you, honor you together. Please give us a sweet time of fellowship. And for those who are out today, those who are traveling, those who are with family or those who might be sick, please comfort them, encourage them, guide them, direct them. Give them a special blessing today and help us to remember to reach out to them and let them know uh, how much we love them and care about them. God, thank you so much for uh, your word and this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Yeah, we're starting it today. I was just making sure you had it. Yeah, yeah, I handed it out quite a, quite a bit ago. So anyway, yeah, page 40 is where we are. Shauna, do you know if you need page 40? Okay, very good. Yep, you bet. All right, so the next section here, or next uh, lesson within this section, is about regeneration or being born again. So that's what we're getting ready to discuss. You see there at the uh, top of your page on page 40 that we will be discussing what regeneration actually is, but then we're, we're going to get into all the effects of that. Baptism of the Spirit should be with the Spirit, rather, not of the Spirit. Baptism with the Spirit, sealing, indwelling, filling, bearing fruit, and gifting. All that comes after we're born again, so first thing we need to do is figure out what it means to be born again. Okay, So let's uh, do one, a little like one sentence or one paragraph review here. What is this? One sentence, or one uh, paragraph, three sentences. God elects some people to salvation according to His will and His purposes alone. He has foreknown them and predestined them. They will all be called, justified, and glorified just as He wills. Okay, that is the uh, summary of what we've been discussing up to this point, particularly the last few weeks where we've been looking at how we are saved, how that comes about in our lives. There's a really short, succinct review for you. Okay, salvation is totally of the Lord. Now, the question we're going to be answering is, what happens inside a person when he or she is saved. So when a person is saved by God's sovereign grace, when a person does come to know the Lord, makes a profession of faith, becomes a Christian, what's going on on the inside? Uh, now, we are all both physical and non-physical beings. We are material and immaterial. The material is the stuff that your doctor checks on all the time. The immaterial is the stuff that I check on all the time with you. Okay, We have not just bodies, but we have souls. The Bible talks about our soul, our heart, our spirit, our mind, all these different terms that we used to talk about our immaterial being. We are made in God's image. We're not just, we're not mere mortals, as C.S. Lewis said. 
but we uh, have this immaterial aspect of our being that will carry on into eternity. What happens with that immaterial aspect of us when we first believe? Because we know that when we first believe, our hair color doesn't change, or our bodies don't change in any, any way, but there's something that changes in us dr- drastically, and so we want to explore that, okay? John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew say, Scripture teaches that the saving benefits purchased by Christ's cross are applied to believers through the work of the Holy Spirit. The saving benefits purchased by Christ's cross are applied. How do those things take effect in a person's life? Well, the application comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, notice that word benefits, saving benefits of Christ's cross. There are benefits that come from Christ dying on our behalf. And, of course, that initial benefit is the forgiveness of your sins. But there's more. Okay? That's what, again, we're going to be exploring. As we look at this word, regeneration. Regeneration is the word literally meaning to be born again. And there are four verses where this word is found. So not just where this theme is found, but where this word is found. So you have at the top of your sheet there verses that speak of regeneration directly. I have these ones highlighted in yellow here because we won't be looking at them in depth. Titus 3, we will be spending a lot of time with today. But there's Matthew 19.28, which will maybe surprise you when you read it. A couple of times in 1 Peter, and then Titus 3.5. That's where that word, regeneration, is found. Again, not just the idea, but the word. You have the idea being explained probably in the clearest uh, detail in John 3, 1 through 8, where Jesus is speaking of being born from above in his interaction with Nicodemus. So that the word regeneration is not found in that passage. But, of course, the idea is clearly found in that passage. So before we get into Titus 3, I think it would be good to catch these verses. Maybe not the John passage, but the other ones where the word is found. Can I get a volunteer to take Matthew 19.28? Matthew 19.28. Mike, thank you. 19.28, that was a good year, wasn't it? Okay. 1 Peter 1.3, who will grab that one for us? 1 Peter 1.3, Katrina. 1 Peter, well, you also get verse 23, how about that? Same chapter, so that'll work. And that, Well, that's what we'll look at. So now what's really interesting, in Matthew 19.28, where this word regeneration is used, is that it's not talking about personal salvation at all. So it's a word that means born again, but it's not talking about individual salvation. So let's hear how Jesus uses the word in Matthew 19, 28. Okay, so Jesus here is telling his disciples that they will sit on thrones just as he is going to sit on his throne. When? Yeah, when's he going to do that? Yeah, keep going. In the... Where's the... Look at our word. Look at our word there. What, what, what does it say? In the what? Okay. 
in the regeneration. What on earth is he talking about? Someone tell me. Yes. 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 Those are all true. But that's not what he's talking about. When he comes back, okay, but what does that have to do with something being regenerated? Okay, that's good. What's being made new here? Ah, you're all around it, but you're not there. What is Jesus talking about? The world will be, uh, we'll say, born again. There's like a born-again experience that will happen with the world. When is Jesus going to sit on his glorious throne in Jerusalem, reigning over his kingdom? When's he going to do that? Now or later? Okay, later. Later. So when he says regeneration here, he's not talking about anything that's happening right now because he's not sitting on his throne reigning from Jerusalem right now, is he? No, but he will. And that's going to happen at a time that he refers to as the regeneration where the world is going to undergo a change. Okay, now this is not even talking about the new earth. That's later. But the world's going to undergo a change when Jesus comes back. And you can read about this in the prophets. You can read about it in Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 19. There will be physical changes that happen on the face of the earth when Jesus comes to reign for a thousand years. And it's going to be a pretty amazing thing. And Jesus is talking about that time as a regenerative time. In the regeneration when he comes back to reign from his, on his glorious throne. Then the disciples will reign on their thrones, and they will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, what else is going to be happening in that regeneration according to this verse? What's going to be happening during Jesus' kingdom? You've got to have 12 tribes of Israel, don't you? Who are the disciples going to be reigning over with Jesus if there, are, if there is no Israel? So Israel is going to be reconstituted, and there are going to be 12 tribes, and the disciples of Jesus are going to reign over them, which is pretty interesting. But he refers to this time as a born-again experience for the world. I think that's pretty fascinating, don't you? Thoughts or questions on that? Joe? Oh, we'll be there, for sure. Because we get to come back with Jesus. We will be coming back with Him. He's coming back with the armies of heaven, clothed in white linen. And that will be you. You will be included in that with your glorious new body that's able to rule and reign with Jesus. <laughs> well, I'm sure that, uh, in that in that time in the regeneration, there will be a non-wrinkling linen that you'll wear. That'll be, that'll be great. <laughs> Mike. What do you mean reconciliation with Judaism? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I would use the term Judaism, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, this is linked with that Romans 11 passage where it says, all Israel will be saved. That's leading into this. Yes. Was it you, Wendy? Okay, yes, yeah, there's a remnant that will be saved. Yeah, and actually it, uh, we get some figures on that in Zechariah 13 where it says, two th- or, well, Israel, all of Israel is going to pass through the fire, two-thirds will be cut off. 
and the one-third that remains, the remnant, they will all be saved. And over them, the disciples will rule with Jesus in his kingdom. And he tells the overcomers in Revelation, he tells them, you will sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. That's your promise, Christian. Pretty amazing. Okay? Other thoughts or questions about the world regeneration and all that stuff? Okay. Well, now the other instances of the word are applied to individual salvation. So I think it's helpful to see this the context that Jesus uses it in and how there's like going to be a change and that there's going to be not just a change, a physical change, but in the world at that time, there's going to be a governmental change. We're coming up here on Christmas, aren't we? In Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. That's going to happen here in the regeneration. So there's going to be a lot of changes that happen. So as we think about that word meaning change, let's consider what Peter has to say about our individual salvation. 1 Peter 1, 3, and 23, Katrina. Okay, so... Hang on to that verse where you see born again, at least in the New American Standard. That's our word for regeneration. And then verse 23. All right. So both times here in the New American Standard Bible, at least, the word for regeneration is translated as born again. That's, again, literally what the word means. And so verse 3 tells us that our Individual salvation can be characterized as a born-again experience that has happened because of God Himself. Notice it says in verse 3, Blessed be God who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. No one has ever given birth to himself or herself, right? Your birth has a cause outside of yourself. Your new birth as a cause outside of yourself. And the cause is God himself, okay? And uh, verse 23, again, using the translation here, that this is born again, you have been born again through the living and enduring word of God, through scripture and its testimony of Jesus Christ, okay? So interesting stuff going on with that word for regeneration, which again, literally means born again. But let's all go to Titus 3 together. We're going to spend maybe the rest of our time here today. Titus chapter 3, and let's look at verses 3 through 7 and break it down nice and slow to see what God has revealed here about our born-again experience. Who would read for us Titus 3, 3 to 7? Mandy.
What an amazing passage. This is so, so good. Now, I got some questions for you. Basic hermeneutics questions here. How is the gospel explained in this passage? If you could sum it up in your own words, verses 3 to 7 here, real succinct-like, what's the gospel? What's the gospel all about? Good. Good. I like that. That's simple and straightforward, and that's what the gospel should be, right? Hi, Taylor. Simple and straightforward, okay? How about this? How many active verbs are ascribed to man after verse 3? So verse 3, we're very active in verse 3. We're being foolish, disobedient, deceived, slaves to lust and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy. We're hateful. We're hating one another. Very, very, very active in verse 3. All right, now beyond verse 3, as you look at verses 4 to 7, is man active at all? No. We are now in the passive, aren't we? This is now God coming to us and God being active in us. God doing a work. You get all your works, you know, when people want to talk about works, you get all your works in verse 3. Not a pretty list. Not pretty. And then we see God's works in verses 4 through 7. Very, very, very beautiful list of what God is up to in saving us. Now, look specifically at the Holy Spirit's activity. What is He doing in verse 5? Now, read through verse 5 and then into verse 6. What is the Holy Spirit doing? Mm-hmm. Yes, in God's mercy, He is washing and renewing. Notice it's a washing of regeneration. There's our word that we're examining. Washing of regeneration and renewing that's happening. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. So this is a figure that Paul uses on multiple occasions that the Holy Spirit is poured out, but like a bucket being poured out. The Holy Spirit, who is God Himself, is poured out into our hearts. He is the one who comes and washes us, renews us, causes us to be born again to a living hope. We could tie some passages together. John Frame, you didn't give birth to yourself. You didn't have anything to do with your own birth. Others gave birth to you. Your birth was a gift of grace. So your new birth was a gift of God. In this case, God, the Holy Spirit. See that in our passage, that this regeneration is a gift of God? Okay. Regeneration happens, this is your blank to fill in here. Regeneration happens as we are unified with Christ, which happens according to God's mercy. Verse 6 says that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Can you have the Holy Spirit poured out upon you richly apart from Jesus Christ as your Savior? No, I mean, that should be pretty obvious, right? The only way to have this experience with God the Spirit is through Jesus Christ our Savior. So as you're unified with Him, as you identify with Him by faith, that is how the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And notice that this is past tense. Paul, of course, is writing to Titus, and he's speaking here of all Christians and Paul is saying that this happened in the past. 
He poured, past tense, poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Okay. This is something that happened in the past. Verse 4, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, past tense. Verse 5, He saved, past tense, saved us. Okay. So this is a past event. Now there's ongoing realities for this, and there's a difference between the Holy Spirit coming to indwell you and you being filled by the Holy Spirit. We'll get into all that in this lesson. But uh, for now, it's enough for us to just say, well, look, Paul is talking about an event that happened in the past. An event that happened in the past. Very, very important. Basic hermeneutics stuff, basic interpretation stuff. And this event is the same event spoken of in John 3 and 1 Peter 1. Peter says in the passage that Katrina read that God caused us to be born again to a living hope, that you've been born again through the living and enduring Word of God. Jesus with Nicodemus says the wind goes and you can't see it, you can't explain it, just the wind comes and goes. So it is with the Spirit. He comes upon those whom He wills, and He causes people to be born again according to the will of God. Same event being talked about here as in Titus chapter 3 by the Apostle Paul. When he says renewed, to be renewed is to be made better. So what this passage is saying is that believers have been regenerated or born again. They've been cleansed and they've become altogether new. And you see all of that in verse 5, that the washing of regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit happened in our hearts in the past as a single event for all of those who have believed in Jesus Christ. Pause there. See what you're thinking. Thoughts, questions. Mike. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> the regeneration of the world? No, <clears throat> no, that's future. That's squarely in the future. Yeah, so Jesus talks about um, in the regeneration you will, future tense, reign with me, okay? And here, it's talking about past. Now, what's interesting, you know, words have a, a semantic range. Words can be used in different places. But I love that we have this use in Matthew 19.28 because it shows us a little bit more about what it means to undergo such a change. Uh, again, thinking of this illustration of what the world will be like when Jesus comes and rules with a rod of iron... How different is the world going to be when the nations are submitting to the King of kings and Lord of lords? Oh, man. Because what kind of world are we living in right now? An evil, rebellious, perverse, wicked generation, right? That's the world we're living in. When Jesus comes, a rod of iron, kiss the sun lest he be angry with you, Psalm 2. He's going to rule the nations, and they will be obedient. And there will be no doubt that he is king of kings, or prime minister of prime ministers, or president of presidents. There will be no doubt whatsoever. It'll be a very different world. And so as we think about that coming, we can take that same concept and apply it to what's happened in our hearts in the past as Christians. Jesus is king of kings in your heart. It's better for you to obey God rather than men. You must obey your Lord rather than Caesar. You don't say Caesar is Lord, you say Jesus is Lord. And it's a change that takes place in your heart that's already happened if you are a believer in Jesus. Other thoughts or questions here? That's good. 
Hey. Remember uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. New has come. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've been made new. You are a new creation. What it means to be born again is that a new life has begun. Old life has passed away. New life has begun. Titus 3 again, inextricably tied to regeneration and renewal, is justification. So let's look at verse 7, uh, verses 6 and 7. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us richly, again, past tense, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What does justified mean? Someone... Refresh us, justified, what does that mean? Good, to be made right with God, yeah. Remember verse 3 that started this passage, you are not in your natural state right with God, are you? No, 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 Titus 3.3 3 could be a helpful memory verse if you start thinking, man, I'm awesome. No, uh, you are not, you were born into a sinful state which was demonstrated by your actions as it's described there in verse 3. Okay, notice he says, us, we, these are actions that applied to all of us. But by the grace of God, the salvation provided in Jesus Christ, verse 7, you can be justified, made right with God, totally forgiven, totally released from the condemnation and the wrath that was hanging over you because of your wicked deeds and your wicked heart and your wicked motivations. All of that can be undone because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so, as we think about regeneration, it's inextricably tied to this idea of justification. If you're born again, if you're made new, it's because you've also been justified by God. If you're made new, it's because you've been made right with God. Everyone who's been made right with God has been made new. Everyone who's been made new has been made right. Those two things go together. It's not like God forgives you of your sin and says, you are saved, you're going to heaven when you die, but uh, now I'm going to wait for you to jump through some hoops before I give you my Holy Spirit before you're born again. That's not how this works. It's all tied together. Okay, That's very, very important to remember. Those who are justified are children of God, set apart from the world, awaiting a future glorification. And as we wait, we have God the Spirit abiding in us because we've been born again by Him, and He remains with us. Some more blanks for you to fill in here. Regeneration occurs at a moment in time, and it is permanent, not fading. It is permanent, not fading. So you don't get born again, and then slowly over time, if you're not you know, performing correctly, you're like not going to lose your born-again status, your regeneration. You're not going to like, need to be born again again. Okay? Only need to be born again once. You do not need to be regenerated again. You are born again once. Wow, it's like I wrote this. And furthermore, regeneration is instantaneous at your conversion. There is no waiting period. So you see that again as another blank at the top half of page 40. Regeneration is instantaneous at your conversion. No waiting period, no time, no delay. When God comes to you to save you, He comes to you and remains with you. Very, very important to recognize that. Uh, as some people may try to twist this a bit, and 
don't know, shove your own efforts in there to make you uh, born again. Born again, conversion, all happens together, all tied together. Okay? Thoughts or questions on any of that? We went through Titus 3 a lot faster than I thought we would. Okay, we'll just keep her moving. This is from the London Baptist Confession, 1689. A lot of words. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also further sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue, by His Word and Spirit indwelling in them. <gasps> the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. <gasps> wow. That's one sentence. Can you believe that? Isn't that amazing? We just don't write like that anymore. Now, um, because we don't write like that anymore, you read that and you're like, what on earth did that just say? What did we just listen to? Well, you need to go back and spend a little time with it and marinate on it. It's a very, very good sentence. So many good things in there. Um, talking about, essentially, you've been born again by the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit coming to you. Through that same virtue, His Word, His Spirit dwelling in us as Christians... The whole body of sin is destroyed. The lusts of the body are more and more weakened. We're killing them over the course of time. And more and more Christians are made alive, are strengthened in all saving graces. That we would practice true holiness because as Hebrews tells us, without holiness no man shall see the Lord. So the process is you're dead in your sin. God's power comes to you by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. His effectual calling to save those whom He has chosen. You are born again by the Spirit of God, and now you're set on a new course of life to live for God. And over the course of time, fighting sin, killing sin, and being strengthened by His grace, being strengthened by His Word to practice holiness. So even though you have all this instant stuff happening at your conversion, including the Holy Spirit coming into your heart to remain there, your practices, your thought patterns, the things you've been taught, all that takes time to work out, doesn't it? It takes a lot of time. Especially, I mean, the later in life that you get saved, the harder it is to go back and reprogram yourself, okay? It takes a long time to go through all of that. But because of God's faithfulness, it will happen. It just doesn't ha all that doesn't happen instantaneously. As much as we wish that God would, like, take out the CPU of our brain and put into us a Christian CPU so we would only think biblically all the time, that's just not what happens. It takes time. You're being conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, and that takes time. Okay? And that's what we'll talk about for the remainder of our lesson here is how that happens. But anything, anything there? Quiet, quiet bunch. That... <laughs> I don't know. They, they uh, knew the semicolon well, and they were not afraid to use it. Yeah. Dan, were you going to say something? When he died on the cross. Yet, his purchase of redemption is not applied to all people. Even though he died for all people, that purchase only applies to those who believe, right? 
That's the, that's the distinction. Okay? All right, let's keep going. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit's work now. I imagine uh, this will take us two or three weeks to cover these, but if you guys keep being all turkey coma like you are today, we'll just uh, cruise through it. Okay? The New Testament speaks of the Spirit work, Spirit's work in believers in six different ways. So you have them there on your sheet, and you, you see that I've got like two arrows going in the two different directions. And here how, here's how this is different. You have on the one side, this is God's work alone. It's effectual, meaning God sets out to do it. He accomplishes it on his own. He is going to baptize those whom he has chosen, those whom he has saved. They're baptized with the Holy Spirit. They are sealed with the Holy Spirit. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we'll cover those in more detail. But what you can write in that arrow is that this is God alone at work. This is effectual. I can give you a couple of uh, words here that are pretty fancy. This is God's monergistic work. Monergistic. What a word. Uh, Monergistic. It comes from a combination of two words. But the prefix here comes from like mono. Not the uh, disease, but uh, mono, like mono versus stereo. What's the difference between mono and stereo? Okay, yeah, yeah. So you've got, um, you know, we mess up sometimes with the audio that we put out on our church's podcast. Sometimes we'll accidentally put it out in mono. And if you're a headphone user, it's like, it's only coming through one of my headphones. What's the deal? Because we accidentally did that. Um, Mono, though, is related to one, as James was just saying. It's the work of one. It's the work of God. The baptism with the Spirit, the sealing with the Spirit, and the indwelling by the Holy Spirit is the work of one, God himself. The other, though, these other three are works of God in conjunction with man. So there's man's cooperation involved now when it comes to the filling with the Spirit, bearing fruit by the Spirit, and the gifting of the Holy Spirit. Though the gifts of the Spirit do come to us as He wills alone, the exercise of them, that happens through our cooperation. And so the results here are dependent on man's obedience. Man's obedience comes into play when you talk about those three aspects. So you could say that's synergistic. Now this is where hopefully uh, using this word it is more readily understandable. Monergistic just looks like a bunch of letters that don't go together, but synergistic. We use that word synergy all the time, don't we? Uh, There's a lot of synergy working together, multiple things coming together to function properly. That's essentially what synergistic means. These things, these attributes or these results are synergistic, meaning that man cooperates with God, and the result is, of course, honoring him, worshiping him, fruit being born to God, okay? So we will cover um, each one of these in detail, starting with the uh, baptism with the Spirit. In all four Gospels, it is recorded that Jesus said he would baptize his people with the Spirit. Now this first occurred at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the apostles were baptized. They were gathered together in the upper room, they were praying, and uh, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They heard a noise like a violent rushing wind, and there were the tongues of fire abiding on them. And they were baptized with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So you've got those blanks there at the bottom of page 40. 
that it was recorded in all four Gospels that Jesus would baptize His people with the Spirit, and it first occurred with the apostles at Pentecost. Remaining references to spirit baptism are debatable, some saying they all refer to water baptism. It's kind of interesting. Um, Pretty much anywhere else you go in the New Testament that talks about baptism, you have to decide, is this talking about water baptism or baptism with the Spirit? And there are going to be some people that lean really heavily saying, yeah, when it's talking about baptism there, it's talking about when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we're baptized with the Spirit. And there will be other people who say, no, that's talking about physical water baptism that we are to do. And so uh, as we look at these passages that you have at the bottom of your sheet, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 6, just know that there are going to be some people who will say this refers to water baptism. But I believe in both of these instances, at least, it's referring to spirit baptism, baptism with the Spirit. Sarah. So in Acts chapter 2, they were not water baptized. In Acts chapter 2, they were baptized with the Spirit as evidenced by their speaking in other languages. The, the gifting of God that came upon them spontaneously as a sign that indicated they had received the Spirit. Yeah, you know, it's fine. He was. Yep, by John the Baptist. To fulfill all righteousness, he said. Yeah. So um, you've got uh, Jesus saying... Look, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now. That's where Jesus sets it up in the Gospels. And so not many days from now, after he ascended, Pentecost, there they're gathered and they're baptized with the Spirit. That's a pretty amazing thing. Um, Now, there will be some groups that say, uh, Pentecostal groups mostly, who will say, well, look, you can be saved, but not baptized with the Spirit. You're saved, you're born again, but you're not baptized with the Spirit. That comes later, and when that happens, it'll look just like it did with the apostles. You will speak in tongues. Except, of course, the, maybe all of those groups will say that the tongues there refers to incoherent babble, not actual languages. It's very clear in Acts chapter 2 they were speaking in actual languages because the people who were there say, oh, I hear them speaking in my language. Um, so they were actual languages. Now, we don't believe that. We're not Pentecostal. We don't believe there's a separation between salvation and baptism with the Spirit. We, we don't believe that's the case. Um, and as these passages, I think, will indicate, we are baptized with the Spirit at the moment of salvation. So let's look at these passages, and then um, we'll pause to, pause to ponder. Starting with 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, two verses. 12 and 13. Who would read this for us? First, Evelyn, thank you. All right, so... Again, thinking about your two options for how you're going to interpret baptism in a passage like this, you've got the whole setup from Jesus to the disciples, you will be baptized with the Spirit. You've got the event in Acts chapter 2, like, oh, there it is, and then it happened again with Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. So in Acts chapter 10, Gentiles experienced the same thing when they believed on Jesus. And so you've got Spirit baptism as a thing. It exists as a thing. Then you also have, of course, water baptism, and Jesus commanded... To his disciples, go to all the world, 
proclaim the gospel, you teach them, you baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's, of course, what they did. You read the book of Acts, and they're, they're baptizing people in water. So then you get past all of those things, all those teachings and events in, gospel, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, and you get to a passage like this and you say, what is Paul talking about? Is he talking about spirit baptism or water baptism? Well, I believe this is talking about spirit baptism. When does this baptism take place? Are there any indicators in 12 and 13 about timetable? When does this take place? I think there is in the first half of verse 13. Okay, yeah, that's good. Very good to point out. And what's interesting to, to couple with that reality is that this is the same church, the same letter at the beginning where Paul says, I thank God I baptized none of you, except for he names a couple people. And here he says, we were all baptized. That's very interesting. And what's the result of this baptism? I think this also indicates time. Verse 13, what's the result of the baptism? Is that we would be in one body. We're, we're baptized into one body. When does a person become a member of the body of Christ? At salvation, at, at belief. We are saved by grace through faith. And you become a member of the body of Christ. I don't think Paul had in view here that you become a member of the body of Christ when you undergo water baptism. I don't think that's what he's teaching. That would, this would, that would be extremely unique in all of Paul's writings that he would say that. It would be the only verse that would indicate that, and he has other things that he teaches that kind of go against that. So to me, those two things together indicate that this happens at salvation. At salvation. Now, some people who take the water baptism view of this would say, yeah, that's true, because back then, as soon as you believed in Jesus, you went down to the lake and you got baptized, which is true. That's what happened. They didn't wait. They didn't do this whole, well, I'm not sure if I should do it or not. It was like, well, God, Jesus commanded, get baptized. Duh. I believe in Jesus. He's my master. I'm going to obey my master. And they went and got baptized. I think we could use a little bit more of that in our lives today. Okay. But... I don't think Paul had water baptism in view when he wrote that particular verse. Upon belief, a person is baptized with the Holy Spirit, placing him or her into the church, Christ's body, made up of the redeemed. Christ's body is not a group of people where you've got uh, water baptized, they are, his, they are his body, and then the non-water baptized, they're like, I don't know, uh, his jacket. They're not really his body, but they're like, you know, right here. That doesn't make any sense. We're all one body, and we've all been baptized by the Spirit. I think that's what Paul's teaching. Okay? Wayne Grudem, what shall we say about the phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit? It is a phrase that the New Testament authors use to speak of coming into the new covenant power of the Holy Spirit. It happened at Pentecost for the disciples, but it happened at conversion for the Corinthians and for us. I think that's the, the proper understanding of 1 Corinthians 12. Baptism in the Spirit gives the believer a new nature that is identified with Christ and symbolized in physical baptism. So our, our physical water baptism is a representation of what's already taken place in the heart. That's how we believe about baptism as 
we are Baptists after all. We're, we're lowercase b Baptists. That's what I tell people, okay? Uh, because we're not, we're not baby sprinklers. That means we are Baptists of some variety, meaning we teach believer's baptism. Baptism in water is only for those who have been baptized in the Spirit. It's, it's only for those who have a profession of faith, a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. That's who baptism is for. And when we take part in water baptism, it's not getting us something. It's, I guess, getting us obedience to the Lord's command, but it's not getting us the Spirit. It's not getting us salvation. It's not getting us any of those things. It's a picture of what's already taken place in our hearts. Okay, that's, that's what it is. And I think Romans 6 bears this out. So now let's turn to Romans 6 together and look at verses 4 through 7. Romans chapter 6. Four to seven, who would read those for us? Romans six, four through seven. Going once, twice sold, Katrina. <clears throat> Romans chapter six, four to seven. Let's uh, pay close attention to how Paul is using baptism here. All right, so this whole passage is talking about being identified with Jesus Christ, dying with Him, rising with Him. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. We identify with Jesus. We are people of Jesus. That's what this passage is all about. And it says in verse 4 that we've been buried with Jesus through baptism into death. So just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. Do we get identified with Jesus at water baptism? Or do we get identified with Jesus when we believe in Jesus? Yes. When we first believe, you are identified with Jesus Christ. Uh, it says in, uh, this is Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, that the one who believes in the Lord is one spirit with him. Identification with him through belief. Water baptism reflects this spiritual baptism. Physical baptism symbolizes the preceding spiritual baptism. Again, it's like I wrote it. Isn't that crazy? The old self was crucified and the body of sin was done away with. And through this conversion process, the believer is freed from sin. An amazing thing. Will you still sin? Yes. Does it have dominion over you as it did before? No, it does not. Very important. Oh, I guess there's one more, isn't there? Colossians chapter 3. And then after this one, I'll pause for some questions. Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 11. As we continue to consider baptism with the Spirit. Longer passage, I'll, I'll read it. Starting in verse 1, Colossians chapter 3, down through verse 11. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. When a person is baptized with the Spirit, one person dies and another person is created. This is, again, getting to that regeneration thing, that born-again experience, being baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's an old self and there's a new self. And our old self is to be considered dead, that body of sin, dead, but that old self still has a little bit of energy left in him, doesn't he? Yes, and that's why we're called to put them away, set them aside, put off the old self, put on the new self. Therefore, the evidence of this baptism is a life that is given to God in obedience to the authority of His Word as opposed to a one-time feeling. New living is the result of, being, of having been baptized in the Spirit. So Colossians chapter 3 is talking about that old self, new self stuff. Well, how do you know if someone has, including yourself, been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, there's evidence of new life. If there is no evidence of new life, that's obviously a cause for concern. So at the top of page 41, the blank that you have there, the evidence of this baptism is a life that is given to God in obedience. Will people always feel the baptism with the Spirit? What do you think about that? Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, I think our experiences on this will vary a lot. Okay, very widely. It's a better way of saying that. Um, again, going back to a more Pentecostal mindset where they say, look, the Acts chapter 2 experience with the apostles, that is to happen to everybody. Well, if that's the case, there will be feeling. I mean, when you experience it, there will be no doubt that you have been baptized with the Spirit. There will be emotion. There will be this evidence of speaking in other languages. All of that's going to be going on. So that, that doesn't get around your feelings at all. But for the person who maybe has a slower conversion experience, someone who's been studying, who's been uh, going through the Bible, perhaps with a church or something like that, and at some moment in that experience truly believes on the Lord, will that person even be able to remember the exact moment where true belief happened? Probably not. That's the testimony of a lot of people. I mean, think of uh, children raised in a Christian home. My, my children, all three, have professions of faith. Two of them have been baptized. Do they know the exact moment they were born again? No. I mean, when they get to be my age, will they remember? Certainly not. And that's okay. 
That's okay. Some people get really hung up on this thinking, I need to have this really emotional experience, this really emotional feeling that I can hang on to that experience. We don't want to hang on to experiences. Experiences can be very nice. They can be very encouraging, but they're not the foundation of your faith. The foundation of your faith is Jesus Christ, the Word of God. That's the foundation. Okay? And so if you have an experience where it's like, there's no doubt I was born again, then I have one of those. That's good. If you don't have one of those, but you know you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, that's good too. They're both very good. Okay? So questions on baptism with the Spirit. Pentecost, yeah. So that's a Jewish holiday, okay? And in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus ascends into heaven, the apostles are there and they're going to Jerusalem because they're into the city because they're celebrating Pentecost. It's a time when Jews from all over would go into uh, Jerusalem to celebrate this very, very important holiday. And so they get there and they're gathered together in the upper room of a house, and they're praying together, and they're essentially waiting for the Holy Spirit to arrive as Jesus promised. And the Holy Spirit did arrive. The Holy Spirit, a gift from God, who is God Himself, one of the persons of the Trinity, He comes and He fills them. He gives them supernatural signs and wonders. And there's no doubt that this is the baptism experience that Jesus promised. So Acts chapter 2 is where you can read about that. Joanna, do you have a thought? Yeah, um, I would just say to that person, just keep reading your Bible. <laughs> and, you know, if you want to reject parts of your Bible, I can't make you accept them. But it's, it's pretty evident uh, there that baptism continues. I mean, it would, it would, it's a real stretch, a real twisting of the words of the New Testament to say water baptism is not for today. Um, yeah, there's just no indication that that ceases anywhere. Um, but at the end of the day, if a person wants to believe that, that person's going to hang on to it. And that's really the struggle. Because you can, you can just point out verses all day long and say, well, what about this? And if that person's mind is made up, their mind's made up. So, Joe? Would I? Is that what you said? Oh, do the Jews? Oh, yes. Yep. They celebrate the Old Testament uh, view of Pentecost, which, I mean, that's where it all originated, right, is in the Old Testament through Moses. They believe all of that. Um, they don't believe there's any kind of Christian significance to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit. This event with the apostles in Acts 2, they totally disregard. It's just all about the memorial uh, that God set up with the Jewish people in Exodus, I think, book of Exodus. One of those first five books uh, that just how God set it up there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'll I'll print out a there's a there's a brief article on that. I'll print it out and give it to you. Yeah, that'll be good. Stan? Okay, two copies. Very good. Other thoughts or questions on baptism with the Spirit? Yes, ma'am.
Yes. Yes. I mean, it, and this is so, so difficult when someone's mind is made up. Now, I don't want to come across like, well, yeah, you just show them the Bible and that won't have any effect. I don't want to come across like that because the Word of God's the only thing that will break through that mindset. Uh, the, the Word of God's the only thing that can penetrate a stubborn, cold heart. And so you just keep sharing the Word of God, and uh, if God does His work, He will do it through His Word. Okay, well, how about I pray for us, and we'll go on to uh, the next thing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for causing us to be born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ. God, we ask that You would help us to understand more and more of what that means and the effects of that in our lives. Help us to be more and more given over to You in obedience, to honor you, to serve you with all of our lives for all of our days. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.